0: Let's get started with chapter 15. She's got the bow and arrows, which is going to be a game changer. Okay? Um, So pay attention to how her thoughts and her strategy change now. Okay? I enter a nightmare from which I wake repeatedly, only to find a greater terror awaiting me. All the things I dread most, all the things I dread for others, manifest in such vivid detail, I can't help but believe they're real. How many tracker jackers got her, Caden? Three. Okay, so she got stung three times. Yeah. Chapter 15. Each time I wake, I think, at last, this is over. But it isn't. It's only the beginning of a new chapter of torture. How many ways do I watch Prim die, relive my father's last moments, feel my own body ripped apart, This is the nature of the Tracker Jacker venom, so carefully created to target the place where fear lives in your brain. When I finally do come to my senses, I lie still, waiting for the next onslaught of imagery. But eventually I accept that the poison must have finally worked its way out of my system, leaving my body racked and feeble. I'm still lying on my side, locked in the fetal position. I lift a hand to my eyes to find them sound, untouched by ants that never existed. Simply stretching out my limbs requires an enormous effort. So many parts of me hunt, hurt, not hunt. (laughs) So many parts of me hurt. It doesn't seem worthwhile taking inventory of them. Very, very slowly I manage to sit up. I'm in a shallow hole, not filled with the humming orange bubbles of my hallucination. But with old, dead leaves. My clothing's damp, but I don't know whether pond water, dew, rain, or sweat is the cause. For a long time, All I can do is take tiny sips from my bottle and watch a beetle crawl up the side of a honeysuckle bush. How long have I been out? It was morning when I lost reason. Now it's afternoon, but the stiffness in my joints suggests more than a day has passed, even two possibly. If so, I'll have no way of knowing which tribute survived that tracker jacker attack, not Glimmer or the girl from District Four, but there was the boy from District One, both tributes from District Two and PETA. Did they die from the stings? Certainly, if they lived their last days, must have been as horrid as my own. But, and what about Rue? She's so small, it wouldn't take much venom to do her in. But then again, the tracker-jackers would have had a, to catch her, and she had a good head start. A foul, rotten taste pervades my mouth, and the water has little effect on it. I drag myself over the honeysuckle bush and pluck a flower. I gently pull the stamen through the blossom and set the drop of nectar on my on my tongue. The sweetness spreads through my mouth, down my throat, warming my veins with memories of summer and my home woods and Gail's presence beside me. For some reason, our discussion from that last morning comes back to me. We could do it. You know what? Leave the district, run off, live in the woods. You and I, we could make it. And suddenly, I'm not thinking of Gail, but of PETA. And PETA, he saved my life, I, I, I think. Because by the time we met up, I couldn't tell what was real and what the Tracker Jacker Venom had caused me to imagine. But if he did, and my instincts tell me he did, what for? Is he simply working the lover boy angle he initiated at the interview? Or was he actually trying to protect me? And if he was, what was he doing with those careers in the first place? None of it makes sense. I wonder what Gail made of the incident for a moment. And then I pushed the whole thing on my mind because for some reason, Gail and Peta do not coexist well together in my thoughts. So I focus on the one really good thing that's happened since I landed in the arena. I have a bow and arrows, a full dozen arrows, if you count the one I retrieved in the tree. They bear no trace of the noxious green slime that came from Glimmer's body, which leads me to believe that might not have been wholly real. Colton, are you following along? What? Well, then you ask where we are. Page 197, middle of the page. See where the dashes are? Right there. Which leads me to believe that that might not have been wholly real. But they have a fair amount of dried blood on them. I can clean them later, but I do take a minute to shoot a few into a nearby tree. They are more like the weapons in the training center than my ones at home. But who cares? That I can work with. The weapons give me an entirely new perspective on the games. Okay, I told you to watch for that, right? I know I I have tough opponents left to face, but I am no longer merely prey that runs and hides or takes desperate measures. If Cato broke through the trees right now, I wouldn't flee. I'd shoot. I find I'm actually anticipating that moment with pleasure. But first, I have got to get some strength back in my body. I'm very dehydrated again, and my water supply is dangerously low. The little padding I was able to put on by gorging myself during prep time in the capital is gone, plus several more pounds as well. My hip bones and ribs are more prominent than I remember them being since those awful months after my father's death. And then there are my wounds to contend with. Burns, cuts, and bruises from smashing into trees and three tracker jackers stings which are as sore and swollen as ever. I treat my burns with the ointment and try dabbing a bit on my stings as well, but it has no effect on them. My mother knew a treatment for them, some type of leaf that could draw out the poison, but she seldom had cause to use it. And I don't even remember its name, let alone its appearance. Water first, I think. You can hunt along the way now. It's easy to see the direction I came from by the path of destruction my crazed body made through the foliage so I walk off in the other direction, hoping my enemies will lie locked in the surreal world of Tracker Jacker Venom. I can't move too quickly. My joints reject any abrupt motions, but I establish the slow hunter's tread I use when I'm tracking game. Within a few minutes, I spot a rabbit and make my first kill with the bow and arrow. It's not my usual clean shot through the eye, but I'll take it. After about an hour, I find a stream, shallow but wide, and more than sufficient for my needs. The sun's hot and severe. So while I wait for my water to purify, I strip down to my underclothes and wade into the mild current. I'm filthy, filthy from head to toe. I try splashing myself, but eventually just lie down in the water for a few minutes, letting it wash off the soot and the blood and skin that has started to peel off my burns. After rinsing out my clothes and hanging them on bushes to dry, I sit on the bank in the sun for a bit, untangling my hair with my fingers. My appetite returns and I eat a cracker and a strip of beef. With a handful of moss, I polish the blood from my silver weapons. Refreshed, I treat my burns again, braid back my hair, and dress in the damp clothes, knowing the sun will dry them soon enough. Following the stream, again, against its current, seems the smartest course of action. I'm traveling uphill now, which I prefer, with a source of fresh water, not only for myself, but possible game. I easily take out a strange bird that must be some form of wild turkey. Anyway, it looks plenty edible to me. By late afternoon, I decide to build a small fire to cook the meat, betting that dusk will help conceal the smoke. And I can quench the fire by nightfall. I clean the game, take extra care with the bird, but there's nothing alarming about it. Once the feathers are plucked, it's no bigger than a chicken. But it's plump and firm. I've just placed the first lot over the coals when I hear the twig snap. In one motion, I turn on the, on the sound, bringing the bow and arrow to my shoulder. There's no one there. No one I can see anyway. Then I spot the tip of a child's boot just peeking out from behind the trunk of a tree. My shoulders relax and I grin. She can move through the woods like a shadow. You have to give her that. How else could she have followed me? The words come out of my mouth before I can stop them. You know, they're not the only ones who can form alliances, I say. For a moment, no response. Then one of Rue's eyes edges around the trunk. You want me for an ally? Why not? You saved me with those tracker jackers You're smart enough to still be alive, and I can't seem to shake you anyway, I say. She blinks at me, trying to decide. You hungry? I can see her swallow hard, her eyes flickering to the meat. Come on, then. I've had two kills today. Rue tentatively steps out into the open. I can fix your stings. Can you, I ask? How? She She digs into the pack she carries, and pulls out a handful of leaves. I'm almost certain they're the ones my mother uses. Where'd you find those? Just around. We all carry them when we work on the in the orchards. They left a lot of nests there, says Rue. There are a lot here too. That's right. You're District Eleven. Agriculture. Okay, where are you supposed to be putting that information? Oh. We already knew District eleven. Oh, you ignore me then. You all do anyway. Sorry, I was eating (laughs) M&M's. Orchards, huh? That must be how you can fly around the trees like you've got wings. Ruth smiles. I've landed on one of the few things she'll admit pride in. Well, come on then. Fix me up. I plunk down by the fire and roll up my pant leg to reveal the sting on my knee. To my surprise, Rue places a handful of leaves into her mouth and begins to chew them. My mother would use other methods, but it's not like we have a lot of options. After a minute or so, Rue presses a gloppy green wad of chewed leaves and spit on my knee. Now I know that sounds absolutely disgusting, but when you're in the arena, you do what you gotta do, right? (laughs) Yeah, Zane's like, yes, completely. Oh, the sound comes out of my mouth before I can stop it. It's as if the leaves are actually leeching the pain right out of the sting. Rue gives a giggle. Luckily, lucky you had the sense to pull the stingers out or you'd be a lot worse. To my neck, to my cheek, I almost beg. Rue stuffs another handful of leaves in her mouth and soon I'm laughing because the relief is so sweet. I notice a long burn on Rue's forearm. I've got something for that. I set aside my weapons and anoint her arm with the burn medicine. You have good sponsors, she says longingly. Have you gotten anything yet, I ask? She shakes her head. You will, though, watch. The closer we get to the end, the more people will realize how clever you are. I turn the meat over. You weren't joking about wanting me for an ally, she asks. No, I meant it, I say. I can almost hear Hamish groaning as I team up with the wispy girl child. But I want her, because she's a survivor, and I trust her. And why why not admit it? She reminds me of Prim. Okay, she says, and holds out her hand. We shake. It's a deal. Of course, this kind of deal can only be temporary, but neither of us mentions mentions that. Rue contributes a big handful of some sort of starchy root to the meal. Roasted over the fire, they have the sharp, sweet taste of parsnips. She recognizes the bird, too, too. Some wild thing called a grossling in her district. She says sometimes a flock will wander into the orchard, and they get a decent lunch that day. For a while, all conversation stops as we fill our stomachs. Hey, you guys, there is a page in your workbook that asks you about District 11 and District 12, the similarities and differences. This is the chapter where you're going to get all that information because Rue's going to tell us about her district. For a while, all conversation stops as we fill our stomachs. The grass lane has delicious meat that's so fatty, the grease drips down your face when you bite into it. Oh, says Rue with a sigh. I've never had a whole leg to myself before. I'll bet she hasn't. I'll bet meat hardly ever comes her way. Take the other, I say. Really, she asks. Take whatever you want. Now that I've got a bow and arrows, I can get more. Plus, I've got snares. I can show you how to set them, I say. Rue still looks uncertainly at the leg. Oh, take it, I say, putting the drumstick in her hands. will only keep a few days anyway and we've got the whole bird plus the rabbit. Once she's got a hold of it her appetite wins out and she takes a huge mouthful. I'd have thought in district 11 you'd have a bit more to eat than us. You know since you grow the food I say. Rue's eyes widen. Oh no we're not allowed to eat the crops. They arrest you or something I ask. They whip you and make everyone else watch says Rue. The mayor's very strict about it. I can tell by her expression that it's not that uncommon an occurrence. A public whipping's a rare thing in District 12, although occasionally one occurs. Technically, Gail and I could be whipped on a daily basis for poaching in the woods. Well, technically, we could get a whole lot worse, except all the officials buy our meat. Besides our mayor, Madge's father doesn't seem to have much taste for such events. Maybe being the least prestigious, poorest, most ridiculed district in the country has its advantages such as being largely ignored by the capital, as long as we produce our coal quotas. Do you get all the coal you want? Rue asks. No, I answer. Just what we buy and whatever we track in on our boots. They feed us a bit extra during harvest so that people can keep going longer, says Rue. Don't you have to be in school? I ask. Not during harvest. Everyone works then, says Rue. It's interesting hearing about her life. We have so little communication with anyone outside our district. In fact, I wonder if the game makers are blocking out our conversation, because even though the information seems harmless, they don't want people in different districts to know about one another. At Rue's suggestion, we lay out all our food to plan ahead. She's seen most of mine, but I add the last couple of crackers and beef strips to the pile. She's gathered quite a collection of roots, nuts, greens, and even some berries. I roll an unfamiliar berry in my fingers. You sure this is safe? Oh, yes, we have them back home. I've been eating them for days, she says, popping a handful in her mouth. I tentatively bite into one, and it's as good as our blackberries. Taking Rue on as an ally seems a better choice all the time. We divide up our food supplies so in case we're separated. We'll both be set for a few days. Apart from the food, Rue has a small water skin, a homemade slingshot, and an extra pair of socks. She also has a sharp shard of rock she uses as a knife. I know it's not much, she says, embarrassed, but I had to get away from the cornucopia fast. You did just right, I say. When I spread out my gear, she gasps a little when she sees the sunglasses. How did you get those, she asks. In my pack, they've been useless so far. They don't block the sun, and they make it harder to see, I say with a shrug. They aren't for sun. They're for darkness, exclaims Rue. Sometimes when we harvest through the night, they'll pass out a few pairs to those of us highest in the trees where the torchlight doesn't reach. One time, this boy Martin, he tried to keep his pair, hid it in his pants. They killed him on the spot. They killed a boy for taking these, I I say? Yes, and everyone knew he was no danger. Martin wasn't right in the head. I mean, he still acted like a three-year-old. He just wanted the glasses to play with, says Rue. Hearing this makes me feel like District 12 is some sort of safe haven. Of course, people keel over from starvation all of the time but I can't imagine the peacekeepers murdering a simple-minded child. There's a little girl, one of Greasy Say's grandkids, who wanders around the hob. She's not quite right, but she's treated as sort of a pet. People toss her scraps and things. So what do these do? I ask Rue, taking the glasses. They let you see in complete darkness, says Rue. Try them tonight when the sun goes down. I give Rue some matches, and she makes sure I have plenty of leaves in case my stings flare up again. We extinguish our fire and head upstream until it's almost nightfall. Where do you sleep, I ask her. In the trees? She nods. In just your jacket? Rue holds up her extra pair of socks. I have these for my hands. I think of how cold the nights have been. You can share my sleeping bag if you want. We'll both easily fit. Her face lights up. I can tell this is more than she dared hope for. We pick a fork high in a tree and settle in for the night. Just as the anthem begins to play. There were no deaths today. Rue, I only woke up today. How many nights did I miss? The anthem should black out our words, but still I whisper. I even take the precaution of covering my lips with my hand. I don't want the audience to know what I'm planning to tell her about PETA. Taking a cue from me, she does the same. Two, she says. The girls from District 1 and 4 are dead. There's ten of us left. Did You guys count? When we came up with nine, did you count, Katniss? So there's te- there should be 10. So check your thing and make sure you've got 10 openings. Something strange happened. At least I think it did. It might have been the tracker jacker venom making me imagine things. I say, you know the boy from my district, PETA? I think he saved my life, but he was with the careers. He's not with them now, she says. I spied on their base camp by the lake. They made it back before they collapsed from the stingers, but he's not there. Maybe he did save you and had to run. I don't answer. If, in fact, Peter did save me, I'm in his debt again. And this can't be paid back. If he did, it was all probably just part of his act. You know, to make people think he's in love with me? Oh, says Ruth thoughtfully. I didn't think that was an act. Of course it is, I say. He worked it out with our mentor. The anthem ends and the sky goes dark. Let's try out these glasses. I pull out the glasses and slip them on. Rue wasn't kidding. I can see everything from the leaves on the trees to a skunk strolling through the bushes a good 50 feet away. I could kill it from here if I had mine to. I could kill anyone. I wonder who else got a pair of these, I say. The careers have two pairs, but they've got everything down by the lake, Rue says. And they're so strong. We're strong too, I say, just in a different way. You are. You can shoot, she says. What can I do? You can feed yourself. Can they? I ask. They don't need to. They have all those supplies, Rue says. Say they didn't. Say the supplies were gone. How long would they last, I say. I mean, it is the Hunger Games, right? But Katniss, they're not hungry, says Rue. No, they're not. That's the problem, I agree. And for the first time, I have a plan. A plan that isn't motivated by the need for flight and evasion. An offensive plan. I think we're going to have to fix that. Rue? I like Rue. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to read one more chapter. (laughs) I know what's going to happen. I think I know what happened. Rue has decided to trust me wholeheartedly. I know this because as soon as the anthem finishes, she snuggles up against me and falls asleep. Nor do I have any misgivings about her, as I take no particular precautions. If she'd wanted me dead, all she would have had to do was disappear from that tree without pointing out the tracker jacker nest. Needling me at the back of my mind is the obvious. Both of us can't win these games. But since the odds are still against either of us surviving, I manage to ignore the thought. Besides, I'm distracted by my latest idea about the careers and their supplies. Somehow, Rue and I must find a way to destroy their food. I'm pretty sure feeding themselves would be a tremendous struggle. Traditionally, the career tribute strategy is to get a hold of all the food early on and work from there. The years when they have not protected it well, one year a pack of hideous reptiles destroyed it, another a game maker's flood washed it away, those are usually the years the tributes from other districts have won. That the careers have been better fed growing up is actually to their disadvantage because they don't know how to be hungry, not the way Rue and I do. But I'm too exhausted to begin any detailed plan tonight. My wounds recovering, my mind still a bit foggy from the venom and the warmth of Rue at my side, her head cradled on my shoulder, have given me a sense of security. I realize for the first time how very lonely I've been in the arena, how comforting the presence of another human being can be. I give in to my drowsiness, resolving that tomorrow the tables will turn. Tomorrow. It's the careers who will have to watch their backs. The boom of the cannon jolts me awake. The sky's streaked with light. The birds already chattering. Rue perches in a branch across from me. hands cupping something. We wait, listening for more shots. But there aren't any. Who do you think that was? Can't help thinking of PETA. I don't know. It could have been any of the others, says Rue. I guess we'll know tonight. Who's left again, I ask? The boy. So we're going to get a list of who's left. So you might want to check to make sure that you have the same people. The boy from districts the boy from district one, both tributes from district two, the boy from three, thresh and me, and you and PETA. Says Rue. That's eight. Wait, and the boy from ten. The one with the bad leg. He makes nine. There's someone else, but neither of us can remember who it is. Who are they missing? Aspen. Nope, she said, nope. Oh. Nope, <laughs> Olivia, who are they missing? The yes, the girl from District 5, Foxface. Oh. <laughs> okay. There's somebody else, but neither of us can remember who it is. I wonder how that last one died, says Rue. No telling, but it's good for us. A death should hold the crowd for a bit. Maybe we'll have time to do something before the game makers decide they've been moving too slowly, I say. What's in your hands? Breakfast, says Rue. She holds them out, revealing two big eggs. What well, kind of those, I ask? Not sure. A marshy. There's a marshy area over that way. Some kind of water bird, she says. It'd be nice to cook them, but neither of us wants to risk a fire. My guess is the tribute who died today was a victim of the careers, which means they've recovered enough to go be back in the games. They each suck out the insides of an egg, eat a rabbit leg and some berries. It's a good breakfast anyway. Ready to do it, I say, pulling on my pack. Do what, says Rue, but by the way she bounces up, you can tell she's up for whatever I propose. Today, we take out the career's food, I say. Really? How? You can see the glint of excitement in her eyes. In this way, she's exactly the opposite of Prim, for whom adventure, adventures are an ordeal. No idea. Come on, we'll figure out a plan while we hunt, I say. We don't get much hunting done, though, because I'm too busy getting every scrap of information I can out of Rue about the career's base. She's only been in to spy on them briefly, but she's observant. They have set up their camp beside the lake. Their supply stash is about 30 yards away. During the day, they've been leaving another tribute, the boy from District 3, to watch over the supplies. The boy from District 3, they ask? He's working with them? Yes, he stays at the camp full time. He got stung, too, when they drew the tracker jackers in by the lake, says Rue. I guess they agreed to let him live if he acted as their guard, but he's not very big. What weapon does he have? I ask. Not much that I can see a spear. He might be able to hold a few of us off with that, but Thresh could kill him easily, says Rue. And the food's just out in the open, I say. She nods. Something's not quite right about the whole setup. I know, but I couldn't tell what exactly, says Rue. Katniss, even if you could get to the food, how would you get rid of it? Burn it, dump it in the lake, soak it in fuel? I poke Rue in the belly just like I would prim. Eat it. She giggles. Don't worry, I'll think of something. Destroying things is much easier than making them. For a while, we dig roots, we gather berries and greens, we devise a strategy and hush voices. And I come to know Rue, the oldest of six kids, fiercely protective of her siblings, who gives her rations to the younger ones, who forages in the meadow in a district where the peacekeepers are far less obliging than ours. Rue, who when you ask her what she loves most in the world, replies of all things, music. Music, I say, in our world? I rank music somewhere between hair ribbons and rainbows in terms of usefulness. At least a rainbow gives you a tip about the weather. You have a lot of time for that. We sing at home, at work too. That's why I love your pin, she says, pointing at the Mockingjay that I've forgotten about. You have Mockingjays, I ask. Oh, yes. I have a few that are my special friends. We can sing back and forth for hours. They carry messages for me, she says. What do you mean, I say. I'm usually up highest. So I'm the first to see the flag that signals quitting time. There's a special little song I do, says Rue. She opens her mouth and sings a little four-note run in a sweet, clear voice. And the mocking jays spread it around the orchard. That's how everyone knows to knock off, she continues. They can be dangerous, though, if you get too near their nests. But you can't blame them for that. Hey, you guys, you know when time's up in a seminar and I have this little whistle? It is the Mockingjay. It's her signal. It's the Mockingjay. That's what it is. I wonder if I got it. Hi, stranger. Let me see if I can find. (laughs) I can find it. Where is that? Where do I find where I put that? I go to alarm. Oh, oh yeah, here it is. To See, that's the Mockingjay tune. Got it. She's met up with Rue, Mrs. Burns. <laughs> I unclasp the pin and hold it out for her. Here, you take it. It has more meaning for you than me. Oh, no, says Rue, closing my fingers back over the pin. I like to see it on you. That's how I decided I would trust you. Besides, I have this. She pulls a necklace woven out of some kind of grass from her shirt. On it hangs a roughly carved wooden star. Or maybe it's a flower. It's a good luck charm. Well, it's worked so far, I say, pinning the Mockingjay back on my shirt. Maybe you should just stick with that. By lunch, we have a plan. By early afternoon, we are poised to carry it out. I help Rue collect and place the wood for the first two campfires, the third she'll have time for on her own. We decide to meet afterwards at the site where we ate our first meal together. The stream should help guide me back to it. Before I leave, I make sure Rue's well-stocked with food and matches. I even insist she take my sleeping bag, in case it's not possible to rendezvous by nightfall. What about you? Won't you be cold? She asks. Not if I pick up some... Pick up another bag down by the lake, I say. You know, stealing isn't illegal here, I say with a grin. At the last minute, Rue decides to teach me her Mockingjay signal. The one she gives to indicate that the day's work is done. It might not work, but if you hear the Mockingjay singing it, you'll know I'm okay, only I can't get back right away. Are there many Mockingjays here, I ask? Haven't you seen them? They've got nests everywhere, she says. I have to admit, I haven't noticed. Okay then, if all goes according to plan, I'll see you for dinner, I say. Unexpectedly, Rue throws her arms around me. I only hesitate a moment before I hug her back. You be careful, she says to me. You too, I say. I turn and head back to the stream, feeling somehow worried about Rue being killed, about Rue not being killed and the two of us being left for last, about leaving Rue alone, about leaving Prim alone back home. No, Prim has my mother and Gail and a baker who has promised she won't go hungry. Rue has only me. Once I reach the stream, I have only to follow it downhill to the place I initially picked it up after the Tracker Jacker attack. I have to be cautious as I move along the water though, because I find my thoughts preoccupied with unanswered questions, most of which concern PETA. The cannon that fired early this morning, did that signify his death? If so, how did he die? At the hands of a career? And was that in revenge for letting me live? I struggle again to remember that moment over Glimmer's body when he burst through the trees. But just the fact that he was sparkling? leads me to doubt everything that happened. I must have been moving very slowly yesterday because I reached the shallow stretch where I took my bath in just a few hours. I stopped to replenish my water and add a layer of mud to my backpack. It seems bent and reverting to orange no matter how many times I cover it. My proximity to the career's camp sharpens my senses and the closer I get to them, the more guarded I am, pausing frequently to listen for unnatural sounds. An arrow already fitted into the string of my bow I don't see any other tributes, but I do notice some of the things Rue has mentioned. Patches of the sweet berries, a bush with the leaves that healed my stings, clusters of tracker-jacker nests in the vicinity of the tree I was trapped in, and here and there the black and white flash of a mockingjay wing in the branches high over my head. When I reach the tree with the abandoned nest at the foot, I pause a moment to gather my courage. Rue has given specific instructions on how to reach the best spying place near the lake from this point. Remember, I tell myself, you're the hunter now, not them. I get a firm grasp on my bow and go on I make it to the copse Rue has told me about and again have to admire her cleverness. It's right at the edge of the wood, but the bushy foliage is so thick down low I can easily observe the career camp without being spotted. Between us lies the flat expanse where the games began. Okay, so listen, after lunch, I'm going to finish this chapter. Okay? and then you guys will have time to work on Common Lit. There are four tributes, that's where we are. There are four tributes, the boy from District 1, Cato, and the girl from District 2, and the scrawny, ashen-skinned boy who must be from District 3. He made almost no impression on me at all during our time in the Capitol. I can remember almost nothing about him, not his costume, not his training score, not his interview. Even now, as he sits there fiddling with some kind of plastic box, He's easily ignored in the presence of his large and domineering companions. But he must be of some value or they wouldn't have bothered to let him live. Still, seeing him only adds to my sense of unease over why the careers would possibly leave him as a guard. Why they have allowed him to live at all. All four tributes seem to still be recovering from the Tracker Jacker attack. Even from here, I can see the large swollen lumps on their bodies. They must not have had the sense to remove the stingers, or if they did, not known about the leaves that healed them. Apparently, whatever medicines they found in the cornucopia have been ineffective. The cornucopia sits in its original position, but its insides have been picked clean. Mm -hmm. Most of the supplies held in crates, burlap sacks, and plastic bins are piled neatly in a pyramid in what seems a questionable distance from the camp. Others are sprinkled around the perimeter of the camp. Wait. Others are sprinkled around the perimeter of the... I should probably turn the page. Pyramid. Almost mimicking the layout of supplies around the cornucopia. At the onset of the games, a canopy of netting that, aside from from discouraging birds, seems to be useless, shelters the pyramid itself. The whole setup is completely perplexing. The distance, the netting, and the presence of the boy from District 3. One thing's for sure. Destroying those supplies is not going to be as simple as it looks. Some other factor is at play here, and I'd better stay put until I figure out what it is. My guess is the pyramid is booby-trapped in some manner. I think of concealed pits, descending nets, a thread that, when broken, sends a poisonous dart into your heart. Really, the possibilities are endless. While I'm mulling over my options, I hear Cato shout out. He's pointing up to the woods, far beyond me. And without turning, I know that Rue must have set the, fire camp- the first campfire. We made sure to gather enough green wood to make the smoke noticeable. The careers begin to arm themselves at once. An argument breaks out. It's loud enough for me to hear that it concerns whether or not the boy from District 3 should stay or accompany them. He's coming. We need him in the woods, and his job's done here anyway. No one can touch those supplies, says Cato. What about Loverboy, says the boy from District 1? I keep telling you, forget about him. I know where I cut him. It's a miracle he hasn't bled to death yet. At any rate... He's in no shape to raid us, says Cato. So Peta is out there in the woods, wounded badly, but I am still in the dark on what motivated him to betray the careers. Come on, says Cato. He thrusts a spear into the hands of the boy from District 3, and they head off in the direction of the fire. The last thing I hear as they enter the woods is Cato saying, when we find her, I kill her in my own way, and no one interferes. Somehow, I don't think he's talking about Rue. She didn't drop a nest of tractor-jackers on him. I stay put for a half an hour or so trying to figure out what to do about the supplies. The one advantage I have with the bow and arrow is distance. I could send a flaming arrow into the pyramid easily enough. I'm a good enough shot to get it through those openings in the net. But there's no guarantee it would catch. More likely, it just burn itself out and then what? I'd have achieved nothing and given them far too much information about myself. That I was here. That I have an accomplice. That I can use the bow and arrow with accuracy. There's no alternative. I'm going to have to get in closer and see if I can't discover what exactly protects the supplies. In fact, I'm just about to reveal myself when a movement catches my eye. Several hundred yards to my right, I see someone emerge from the woods. For a second, I think it's Rue, but then I recognize Foxface. She's the one we couldn't remember this morning, creeping out into the plain. When she decides it's safe, she runs for the pyramid with quick, small steps. Just before she reaches the circle of supplies that have been littered around the pyramid, she stops, searches the ground, and carefully places her feet on a spot. Then she begins to approach the pyramid with strange little hops, sometimes landing on one foot, teetering slightly, sometimes risking a few steps. At one point, she launches up into the air over a small barrel and lands poised on her tiptoes. But she overshot slightly, and her momentum throws her forward. I hear her give a sharp squeal as her hands hit the ground but nothing happens. In a moment, she's regained her feet and continues until she has reached the bulk of the supplies. So I'm right about the booby trap, but it's clearly more complex than I had imagined. I was right about the girl too, how wily she is. Is she to have discovered this path into the food and be able to replicate it so neatly? She fills her pack, taking a few items from a variety of containers, crackers from a crate, a handful of apples from a burlap sack that hangs suspended from the rope off the side of a bin but only a handful from each. Not enough to tip off that the food is missing. Not enough to cause suspicion. And then she's doing her odd little dance back out of the circle and scampering into the woods again, safe and sound. I realize I'm grinding my teeth in frustration. Foxface has confirmed what I already guessed. But what sort of trap have they laid that requires such dexterity? Has so many trigger points. Why did she squeal so as her hand made contact with the earth? You'd have thought, and slowly, it begins to dawn on me. You'd have thought the very ground was going to explode. It's mine, I whisper. That explains everything. The career's willingness to leave their supplies. Fox faces reaction. The involvement of the boy from District 3, where they have factories, where they make televisions and automobiles and explosives. We already have District 3's industry. Okay. Well, where did he get them? And the supplies? That's not a sort of weapon that game makers usually provide, given that they like to see the tributes draw blood personally. I slip out of the bushes and cross to one of the round metal plates that lifted the tributes into the arena. The ground around it has been dug up and padded back down. The landmines were disabled after sixty seconds. We stood after the sixty seconds we stood on the plate. But the boy from District 3 must have managed to reactivate them. I've never seen anyone in the games do that. I bet it came as a shock even to the game makers. Well, hooray for the boy from District 3 for putting one over on them. But what am I supposed to do now? Obviously, I can't go strolling into that mess without blowing myself sky high. As for sending in a burning arrow, that's more laughable than ever. The minds are set off by pressure. It doesn't have to be a lot either. One year, a girl dropped her token, a small wooden ball, while she was at her plate, and they literally had to scrape bits of her off the ground. My arm's pretty good. I might be able to chuck some rocks in there and set off what? Maybe one mine? That could start a chain reaction. Or could it? Would the boy from District 3 have placed the mines in such a way that a single mine would not disturb the others? Thereby protecting the supplies, but ensuring the death of the invader? Even if I only blew up one mine, I'd draw the careers back down on me for sure. And anyway, what am I thinking? There's that net clearly strung to deflect any such attacks. Besides, what I really need is to throw about 30 rocks in there at once setting off a big chain reaction, demolishing the whole lot. I glance back up at the woods. The smoke from Rue's second fire is wafting towards the sky. By now, the careers have probably begun to suspect some sort of trick. Time is running out. There is a solution to this. I know there is. If I can only focus hard enough, I stare at the pyramid, the bins, the crates, too heavy to topple over with an arrow. Maybe one contains cooking oil and the burning arrow idea is reviving when I realized I could end up losing all 12 of my arrows and not get a direct hit on on an oil bin. Since I'd just be guessing, I'm genuinely thinking of trying to recreate Foxface's trip to the pyramid in hopes of finding a new means of destruction. When my eyes light on the burlap bag of apples, I could sever the rope in one shot. Didn't I do as much in the training center? It's a big bag but it might only be good for one explosion. If only I could free the apples themselves. I know what to do. I move into range and give myself three arrows to get the job done. I place my feet carefully, block out the rest of the world as I take meticulous aim. The first arrow tears through the side of the bag near the top, leaving a split in the burlap. The second widens it to a gaping hole. I can see the first apple teetering when I let the third arrow go, catching the torn flap of burlap and ripping it from the bag. For a moment, everything's frozen in time. Then the apple spills the ground, and I'm blown backwards into the air. And I'm still leaving you guys on that cliffhanger. Oh <laughs> my.